me begin by asking you all a question. How's your joy? How's your peace? Amidst life circumstances, I hope you've been able to find a peace that will settle your hearts and your minds. I hope you will be able to find a peace and joy that settles your hearts and settles your minds. Uh, have you guys ever seen Kung Fu Panda 2? That's actually what the whole entire movie is about. Um, it's a story about this martial arts panda who has some serious identity issues. Uh, raised by, well, he was an orphan, raised by a duck. He comes to realize eventually in his adult life that this isn't his birth father. And then he sets out to basically um, find out who he is. And in so doing, he's also supposed to conquer and defeat his enemy. And so he stares his enemy in the face, and it's basically his parents' murderer. His parents' murderers. And so this is the thing that keeps him up at night. Who am I, and how am I supposed to defeat this guy who has hated my family? And as the story goes on, he learns to harness the power and energy of the universe by looking within and then finding inner Peace. As the Buddha said, inner peace comes from within, do not seek it without. And so this is what the movie encourages. The movie encourages us all to seek inner peace by looking within. God actually desires that we find that inner peace as well, or peace as well. But it's really different than, obviously, than what Kung Fu Panda or Buddhism would encourage. They again encourage that want, that inner peace comes from within. Do not seek it without. In Christianity, the message is completely opposite. If you want peace, you find it only without, never within. And this is what our passage here speaks about um, today. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9. And this is the second to last sermon in our series as we're walking through the whole book of Philippians. And uh, Pastor Rick will finish it off next week, and that will complete about ten weeks of Philippians. And as we're going to read this passage, you'll come to realize that these, these verses could seem like the leftovers of Paul's letter to the Philippians. But God says that all of his word is applicable to our lives and important for us. So we want to figure out how this particular text can apply to our lives as we look and preach expositionally. That's taking the point of the passage and then making that the point of the sermon. Um, so we're in Philippians 4, obviously, verses 2 to 9, almost at the very end. Philippians was uh, written by a man named the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul was in jail while he was writing this letter, which is why Philippians and Ephesians, um, they and other letters are known as the prison epistles, the prison letters. Okay, so here we go. Philippians 4, verses 2 to 9. I entreat Yodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, (coughs) whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. It's a sippy cup. <clears throat> okay, so God wants our hearts and our minds to be full of joy and settled with peace. And in, in making this point, Paul basically looks at the realms in which the Christian lives. So first we're going to see he wants us, our hearts, to be settled in peace in the church. And then he moves, and we see then that he wants our hearts to be settled in peace in our individual lives. And then lastly... It's peace in the world. So we basically have peace in the church, the Christian's peace in our individual lives, and then the Christian's peace in the world. So let's look first at the the first point. Paul wants our hearts to be filled with joy and settled with peace in the church. Look at verses 2 and 3. I'll read that again. I entreat Yodia and Syntyche, or I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. So clearly, Paul here is addressing a very specific situation. It's a situation where there obviously is disagreement. And uh, the Philippian church, just like every church, there are, there's going to be some disagreements. And there, they're obviously encouraged to seek peace. Now, we don't know exactly who these women are, uh, apart from what's already listed, and we don't really know what their disagreement was. But it was so important that Paul actually found the need to address it publicly. So this letter would would be received by the church, and then someone, let's say Nicholas, the pastor of the church with the elders, he would read the church to everyone. So you can imagine, here's Yodia, and here's Syntyche, and they're disagreeing. So this is a public disagreement now, at the very least. And here Paul addresses it. He entreats them. That's like begging them. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche, these two gals, to agree in the Lord. And then it's so public that he actually asks a third party to get involved, someone in the church. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. You know, the content of these verses, it really sets our expectation rightly when it comes to relationships in the church. Disagreement is not abnormal. Public disagreement even. A, a disagreement where it's difficult to solve and come to an agreement, that's not abnormal in the church. And even more so, disagreement where a third party is required to help bring reconciliation. These types of things should be uh, expected to some degree. So no church is perfect. And I think these, these verses here are, is actually really encouraging and encourages us all inherent in the verses to be seeking help in bringing reconciliation and then uh, bringing agreement where there is disagreement i mean if you think about there's so many things that we could disagree about whether they be big things or whether they be petty things um so you can think about you know just any relationship that you're involved in husband wife whatever um 
you know, you're in the disagreement. You're so focused on the particulars of the agree of the disagreement. You know, why are your socks on the ground again? Or, um, you know, if you can think about, you know, someone who's habitually late. You know, why are you late again? You're always talking to people. You're always evangelizing to people. You know, can't you just respect me and, and show up on time like we asked? Uh, so there, the, this, those are the, that's the nitty-gritty of those disagreements. So we assume here that this is not a sin issue. It's just a simple disagreement that's, that's threatening their peace, the peace in the church that God wants to be established. And did you notice that in two, three, in verses 2 and 3, he doesn't address the particular issue? For some reason, he sort of glosses over the, the, the real disagreement. And how does he encourage them to pursue agreement? Like, why pursue agreement there? Did you notice that in verse 3? Help these women. Here's the reason, basically, the reason why everyone should be pursuing peace. Who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. Together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers there. So he goes, not the nitty gritty, but like macro vision. The things that are of utmost significance. He says you want to agree. Agree because of these things. Your partners in the gospel. He reminds them of their purpose and their passion. It's actually what, what uh, Paul emphasized there in chapter 1 verse 5. Look there. Verses 3, 4, and 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Well, why? Why is he so joyful? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So that right there, their partnership with him for the sake of Christ is on the forefront of their mind, and he praises God that that actually exists. So this, whatever disagreement is going on, is threatening their partnership, and so Paul says, because they're partners in the gospel, seek agreement where there is disagreement. So that's the first reason for reconciliation. They're partners in the cause of Christ. That's what they labor for, and their disagreement threatens that. And they're saying, whatever preferences you guys have, disagreements, basically saying, lay those things down for the sake of pursuing Christ, knowing Christ together. The second reason for reconciliation, you look there. Philippians 4 again, the last part of verse 3. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Not only are they partners to, to work towards this cause, but they're also bonded by blood. So yet another reason, the second reason to seek reconciliation. First, they're partners in the gospel. Second, they're bonded by blood. So when, when the scriptures talks about people being written in the book of life there, uh, there they're talking about those folks whom Christ has died for and won salvation for. So these people are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. This is the, the basis of their peace, right? They're to work for this common cause, and they're bonded by blood. So you can imagine what, what a rebuke this must have been. Um, just think about right now, if you guys have any disagreement, or if you are sort of shying away from someone who's a believer or avoiding them for who knows what reason. Here this says, man, we work for a common cause and Christ has purchased that person from the dead with his blood. Now, why are you not seeking reconciliation and, and wanting to agree where there is disagreement? This right here is a, a huge rebuke right there. And did you see what kicks off Paul's begging them to agree? 
I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. This isn't just the world's peace that one might want and strive for. This here is peace in the Lord. Agreement in the Lord. So it puts things into perspective, doesn't it? It's easy to lose our focus on living for Christ and giving our entire lives and bodies to see other people know Christ as well. We're not naturally in a disagreement going to ask questions like, so what can I do for them that would help them in their faith? And oftentimes, you know, disagreements, they stem from fear or anxiety. What can I do to help them, even though they might be mad at me, to help them, to comfort them in the gospel in the midst of their fear and in the midst of their faith? How can I live in such a way where I am, as a brother in Christ, responsible and carrying out my responsibilities for them? What's more important in a disagreement? That you would fight over your preferences or that the gospel would go forward, sinners saved, and then believers encouraged. I mean, what's more important, building and maintaining walls of disagreement, or the fact that Christ came to break down those walls of hostility and to bring reconciliation and peace, where we would not know peace otherwise. So with Christ as the goal, and given that we're bonded in blood, right, these things should cause us to simply lay down our preferences and our disagreements for the greater cause of knowing Christ. You know, historically, Baptists have been pretty good at, um, I'm sure other denominations as well, but Baptists have been pretty good at encouraging people to think about uh, what is primary, of utmost significance. So what they would do, especially the Baptists, since by nature we are all independent churches, um, pastors would write these church order books, books on church order. So in these books on church order, you know, they talk about elders or pastors, they talk about the responsibilities of deacons, but they also have a section, an entire section on duties of Christians to one another. And so when everyone would join this body or a body, they would come in and all of them would know that this, these are our responsibilities to one another. And what those things would do, it would help us, help the church members to lay down those issues of preference and then to go ahead and work towards uh, loving one another for Christ's sake. And listen to what one, one Baptist pastor says. He writes in the 1700s. And they've been doing this for centuries. Okay, This is what he says. Every member is expected to do these things. Number one, love unfeigned. Or love genuine, love sincerely. And then the citation there is John 13. By this, by the, your love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples. Number two, to labor to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Straight out of scripture, straight out of Ephesians. Number three, endeavor for the edification and spiritual benefit of the whole body that they would grow up in the Lord. That's maturity, that's scripture. First Corinthians. Number four, that they all would watch over one another for their good. So there, that's a responsibility that I have towards you and you would have towards me. And then number five, that they would pray with and for one another. Number six, that they do not forsake gathering together for worship. And then the list goes on and on. And so what this does is as people join the body, they're just saying, look, these are the scriptural expectations that people have. Your responsibilities towards one another. So the question is, well, to your neighbor, to those sitting across the aisle, what real responsibility do you have towards them? And how exactly are you fulfilling these things? How do you keep them on the forefront of your mind there? 
you can go ahead and think about that uh, throughout the rest of the day. So God wants our hearts to be settled in peace in the church and for Christ's sake. And he desires us to be, have peace with one another as we labor side by side for Christ and as we labor knowing that we are bonded by blood. So let us lay down those preferences freely for the sake of Christ. Well, not only does God want us to have joyful hearts and peaceful spirits in the church, God also wants that, he wants that for us in our individual lives. Let's look there at uh, verses 4 to 7. This is what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. You know, these types of exhortations are like the exhortations we slap on our bumper, you know, or we put them up on our refrigerator. Uh, and I think after 2,000 years of not knowing this context, we sort of don't exactly know the true meaning, uh, or the, we don't understand the way that the Philippians would have understand these, understood these verses. So let's remind ourselves about the context here. <clears throat> Remember, Paul is in jail for his faith. And you all, pretend you're the Philippian church, you also, you, you're, you're joining with him in defense of the gospel. But not only that, you look at 127. Turn back to 127. Actually, 29, okay? Now put yourself in their position. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now still hear that I have. So these people were under serious persecution. A persecution that, by God's grace, we do not know. So when it says, rejoice in the Lord always, right here, you're not talking about like rejoicing even though you don't get into the school of your choice. Here, you're talking about rejoicing even though your livelihood might be threatened. Paul's in jail, and he doesn't even know if he's going to get out or if he's going to face a death sentence. But yet he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And even when you're suffering unjustly, even when you're innocent and suffering, maybe you face accusations, he says there in verse 5, let your reasonableness, or there it has to do with gentleness in the midst of innocent suffering, let your gentleness be known to everyone, including your accusers. So here they got a lot to be anxious about. I mean, have you guys ever gone to a place, maybe on a missions trip, where persecution or religious tension is such where the way you worship changes? Um, Melanie and I went to Northern Ireland um, one time. And there we went. We went for a friend's wedding, and they were telling us about the religious climate in Northern Ireland. And, uh, you know, it was fascinating because we had never been there. We didn't know very much about the country. And they had told us that basically the South, or Ireland, was more or less warring against Northern Ireland. Um, and it, what it seemed to be like, it, it seemed to be the Catholics versus the Protestants because the South was Catholic, the North was Protestant. And uh, so as she was telling us about this, she said, you know, it really affects the way that people live. People, when they pray over a meal, you know, they're really cautious to pray and they're quiet when they pray. They pray like under their breath. 
for fear of the other Catholics around them, <clears throat> you know, maybe getting angry at them. And we have to keep in mind this is where terrorist activity would go on regularly uh, a number of decades ago. So there it affected the way that the people of Northern Ireland lived and carried out their faith. Even in Dubai, it was the same thing, uh, even though it was a bit more free. You know, we could, I could probably stand there at a food court over lunch after church and probably pray loudly, f and it wouldn't affect me as much as it would have affect, affected those Protestants in Northern Ireland, at least the ones that we talked to. So here, imagine how anxious it could become. And that's just praying in public. So imagine what it was for the Philippian church who's in serious persecution. Okay, so they're a little house church. Okay, where do we meet? Can we rent a building? Well, gosh, that's public. Can I have it at my house? If not, if I have it at my house, then people are actually going to see where all these Christians are coming to, and then I might get in trouble if I host it. How is it that we pray? How do we carry out our spirituality? How do we encourage people in the faith? So there was a lot to be anxious about, especially perhaps even losing their lives. Now, we all don't suffer like that, or we may not suffer like that. But I'm sure you know anxiety. In your anxiety, you may be concerned about escaping ill health and wanting to move towards better health. You may want to find a way to restore that broken relationship. You may want to get out of unemployment and find security in employment. Or you might want to get out of a bad GPA and move towards a good GPA, whatever it is. And in those situations, it's like, you know, we know what it's like to muster up every ounce of energy we have so that we can take care of that problem. Every thought we, we would give, we would happily give to try and figure out how do I get out of this? How do I plan my way out of it? Emotional power, physical energy, mental thought, all of that poured into getting out of this problem. And what happens that physically, right? We stay up late. We get stressed out. We get anxious. We get depressed. We don't eat. Paul says in any of those situations, he says, don't be anxious about anything. But in prayer, or but in everything, in every situation, no matter the circumstance, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. In Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful promise there. He promises, so if you're anxious even now, he promises, pray and the peace of God will guard you in Christ. So there's an alternative here. He says you can rely on your own understanding and seek peace in the way that you think it ought to be, or you can entrust yourselves to God. That's the alternative here. One leads to you staying in anxiety. The other one leads to God's peace guarding you. And this is what's so special about the peace of God. Did you notice that? It's the peace that surpasses all human understanding. So you may know, you may think you know what is best for you, what will protect your hearts and minds. But God says no. If you pray God and his peace that comes with resting in him, that is better than any human understanding that you all can imagine or fathom, it comes to guard you. What's amazing is that God's peace here is jealous for us. It guards us. And guards us from any onslaught that may come. And the Philippians knew what, what this word guard meant. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony guarded by Roman garrisons. A Roman garrison. 
so troops, soldiers. So they knew that in the face of persecution, these people here who might hurt me, they knew that God's peace would come and protect them. So you get the idea of like God dispatching soldiers and coming to their rescue and standing guard, standing at watch. But for the Christian, what dispatches the garrison of God's peace is prayer. What, what dispatches God's garrison of peace to guard your hearts is prayer. That's incredible. Interesting that there's no guarantee of a change in earthly circumstance, right? He doesn't say pray and God's going to navigate things for you so that you'd be able to escape whatever situation you want to escape. He doesn't say that, right? So when he says rejoice, look in the, verse 4. He says rejoice, not in the silver lining, he doesn't say rejoice because the world is your oyster or rejoice because things are going to get better. He says rejoice in the Lord. Something external, not something internal. Peace outside, not from within. God promises that he would come to our aid and settle our hearts and minds in Christ. It, you know, uh, sometimes, oftentimes, uh, whether you have babysat children or you have children, you know, they're going to call. And if you've ever stayed overnight with children, they call you at nighttime. And there's so many times when, let's say, Ellie might call in the middle of the night or Bethan or whoever, uh, where I just don't want to deal with it. And so sometimes for legitimate reasons, you know, let's say I have something, some big project I need to work on the next day, I might stick earphones or sorry, earplugs into my ears and just sort of roll over and just not deal with what's going on there. And my lovely wife, she does. Um, but God here never does that. I thank God that God is so much more powerful because I'm weak and I need sleep. So much more knowledgeable. So much more gracious. So much more kind. So much more energetic that he never turns over in disregard because he wants to guard our hearts and our minds in peace. Isn't that incredible? The peace of God. That's the God who stands at watch over your heart if you would only let him. This is what it says here. This is Psalm 121. Listen to this. He will not let your foot be moved. Okay, this, and here, this is psalmist is thinking about persecution. His enemies are warring against him. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. He's always at watch, never tiring, always prepared, and always guarding in a way that he knows is best. You know who knew this? Jesus knew this. And so in the hour of his greatest suffering, what is he doing? He's praying to God in his sorrow. So this is what Matthew says. He was sorrowful even to death. And he lifts his thoughts up to God. My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So he clearly prays for a change of circumstance. But what's of larger significance is entrusting himself to God, who truly knows best. He will not let your foot be moved. And of Christ, he says, trust in him. He's already displayed how much he's guarded Christ's heart and how much he desires to guard us and never abandon us as he says that he did not abandon 
his soul to the grave, but instead raised him to life. Like that's our example right there. So friends, in your anxiety, when you know that you've come up with everything you possibly can, with all the mental energy, emotional energy, physical energy, to come up with ten solutions to get out of your problem, isn't it encouraging to know that God has thought of a billion more and knows just what you need to take care of you, to guard your heart? If you're visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, have you ever considered that in those times when you feel like you are being crushed under that weight of pressure, in those times when you've experienced your greatest unrest, when you feel like you're just going nuts, right? have you ever thought, ever, that you are being taught through your circumstances to have faith in the one who truly can take care of your heart? Friends, let faith come to your relief and trust in the gospel. This is exactly what uh, Adam and Eve did not do. Instead, the, instead of tr entrusting themselves to the good father, they thought they could take care of themselves in a better way. They thought that they could bring themselves more peace, not following the ways of God, but following their own rules and following their own ways. But in so doing, isn't that an offense to God? Who, if he is who he is, you know, the most kind, compassionate, gracious, uh, caring, loving father for the children to say, you aren't that, and I'm going to go my way. That's what Adam and Eve did right there. And in so doing, the Bible says that they sinned against God, earning for themselves their just condemnation. And in that, there is no reconciliation when they're running away from God. But God in his good grace, this here is the gospel, God in his good grace, even though, when, even though when they wanted to make war or disobey God and to cut things off, God pursues them seeking peace. God is a peacemaker and he does this through Jesus Christ for everyone who turns and repents and trusts in him. And Jesus Christ came into the world, took on sin and the wrath that we deserve and died on the cross for us as a substitute. And then he was raised on the third day. And this, this is the beautiful picture that baptism shows us. That the believer has been united with Jesus Christ in his death and then in his resurrection. And for those who do repent, there is peace. Genuine peace. And God then guards our hearts if we would only run to him. God says to us, give up guarding your own heart here. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So the question is, are you trusting God? Are you entrusting yourself to him who desires to stand guard over your heart? Prayer is what dispatches the peace of God to guard your hearts. So Paul wanted the Philippians' hearts to be joyful and then also to be settled in peace in all areas in life. So first in the church, second in their individual lives, and then third in the world. So we can look number three in the world, verses eight and nine. Turn there. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So here in these verses, Paul encourages them towards godly living as they live in an ungodly world. 
And he promises them the presence of God. So not only does God guard from afar, no, he guards being present with us. So again, if you put yourself in their situation, they could be seriously discouraged. Let's say I'm living out the Christian life, and everyone around me is against that. They don't like it, and so they persecute me. The temptation there naturally would be to sort of give up living like this and to give up believing in these things, which is why Paul encourages them towards godliness, continuing godliness even in the face of persecution because the presence of God will be with you. And remember, Paul here, he tells them the benefit. He tells them what's going to happen when they continue to pursue godliness. So look there in chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. He says, Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So it seems that here in verses in chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, he double-clicks on what it looks like to shine in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And so he just lists out all these virtues and says, per, continue pursuing these things, these godly things, as the world sort of looks into it. This is what he says. Whatever is true, that is dependable. Okay, so keep in mind, let's say you guys are the world and you're looking at someone who follows Christ. This person is dependable. Whatever is honorable, so whatever is worthy of respect, those good things, think about those things whatever is just or whatever is righteous whatever is pure that's the holy things whatever is lovely so the things that are attractable or lovable whatever is commendable that's praiseworthy whatever is excellent so that's morally excellent whatever is worthy of praise he says think about these things not only just think about them think about and do them and these are the very things that in verse 9 he says that uh, these are the things that Paul taught them, so things that they learned, the things that they saw in Paul's life, and then in Paul's ministry. So in pursuing godliness, they were very much to be shining like stars. I remember uh, probably about a decade ago, I took my little sister to uh, watch this massive meteor shower. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of stars just shooting through uh, the night sky. <clears throat> and so what we do is we just go to like one spot, and we'd be hiking at like 12 midnight or something. And then we just lie down and look at the sky, and you see just stars everywhere, just meteors going through the sky. And then we go to like the next place, and then you know, the next uh, sort of vantage point, <clears throat> and then just do the same thing. Paul here says that you Christians are like these meteors. You might be passing by just for a second, but that's you shining in the night sky for all the onlookers to watch and see. Now, some of them might think that that's stupid and a waste of time, but other people, they might look at that and think, that is beautiful. Imagine how much more beautiful the creator is who made that person, who made those things. That beauty, those virtues point us to the one who owns those virtues, right? True, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. All that is God himself. And so the Philippians are to pursue these things, living like stars in a crooked and twisted generation. Has that ever happened to you guys? Where your non-Christian friends look at you and ask you questions and and you can tell that they're interested in the way that you live and the things that you think and they're just wondering, well, why? That's happened to me by God's grace on some occasion. Um, 
you know, for a period of time, I hung out with a, uh, quite a rough crowd. <clears throat> and, you know, they wouldn't really talk about love, you know. So gangsters, they don't really talk about love and stuff like that um, and affection. And one time we were sitting around and, uh, you know, it way into the, into the morning. So three, four in the morning and all of our friends are there. And this one guy, so like a leader of the group, he, he looked at me and he told everyone. We were talking about friendship. And then he goes, I know Jeremy loves me more than it, like in a way that I've never been loved. And when he said that, I thought, that is incredible. I didn't even realize that, <clears throat> that in me, in our friendship with, in my friendship with this guy, that he would actually recognize that I love differently than all of his other friends. And he knew me, even though I was at times a horrible testimony, he knew me to be a Christian. And yet he's able to say there's something different about that. Does that ever happen to you guys? I pray that that would happen to you guys. And in fact that you guys would actually have non-Christian friends that to be interacting with and just befriending and loving. So that they would be able to say, something is strange about you. They might, they might mock you for it. I certainly was mocked. But by God's grace, they're going to be interested. And something's going to be stirred in them if the Lord is drawing them to him. So Paul says, I encourage you towards pursuing godliness. You are like those meteors who might stay for a time. But for all of those onlookers, they see. And by God's grace, they see. And they may actually become interested. Or, as Philippians says, it might work towards their destruction as they reject it. So that's the encouragement. Pursue godliness, walk after Christ, and give worrying about your deliverance to me. He sets the promise there in Philippians 4. Turn there again. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. And the God of peace will be with you. So not only does he guard, but he's present to guard. So who better to leave your deliverance to... Then God, who delivered up his own son, who didn't let his son be snatched away by death, but delivered him up from the grave. Why trust in yourselves to get out of your own issues? Why not trust in God, who wants to guard your hearts and settle your hearts in peace? Not necessarily to get you out of the circumstance, but so that in the circumstance you might rest in him and glorify him for who he is by living in that, in that rest. So you see there in the, in the passage, peace comes of God in verse 7. The God of peace will be with you in the church even. There to agree in the Lord or seek peace in the Lord. God guards our hearts and minds and our individual lives in peace. This is peace that is finally outside of us. Paul is not saying you look within yourself and not without and therefore you find peace. He says you know Jesus Christ. And you will know peace. Christ who came into the earth to die on the cross for sins. The question is, will you seek peace by running to Christ or not? And that's where the wonderful thing is, Paul and all of scripture calls us to repent and believe if we have not. And we can know that peace and that rest. As Christ says, come to me all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. So have you repented and believed? If not, do it now. Because that offer of salvation stands for everyone who repents and believes. So to conclude, what motivates you to seek peace? And what brings you that peace? God wants our hearts and minds to be filled with joy and settled in peace. And no matter the circumstance he places us in, no matter what set we find ourselves in, 
those sets are there so that we might glorify and honor and praise Jesus Christ and bring all glory to him. We need only run to him to find that peace. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that we actually think we know better than you. And Lord, we confess that sometimes we desperately want to believe that. In fact, we feel like we need to believe that. Otherwise, things are just going to unravel. But Lord, it's so obvious that here in this passage, you call us to seek peace in Christ. We thank you, Lord, that you are the type of God who neither sleeps nor slumbers, but who always stands watch and never tires and always guards our hearts and minds. Lord, we thank you that you are our guard and we are not our guard. So Lord, we pray that you would cause us to run to you by the power of your spirit and that you by the power of your spirit also would uh, help us to see and understand who you are and then to pursue godliness and peace as we live our lives in this world. In your name we pray, amen.